This morning, we are going to be reading from the book of Ecclesiastes, starting in chapter 1, verse 14, and then going into chapter 2 for the rest of the chapter. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and is striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines to the delight of the sons of man. So I became great, and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended. In doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, and there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes, has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this is also vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil, in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. 
So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has man from all the toil and the striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There's nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or have any have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Thanks be to God. This is the word of the Lord. What a strange word of the Lord this one is, hey? We will uh, explore it today. Uh, thank you, Becky, for reading an entire chapter plus some. Uh, you did well. Uh, the reading aloud of the scriptures is deeply important to us, a practice that has been practiced within the context of churches for many, many years, and that is why we continue to do it, even when it is long and even when it is difficult. Praise be to God. Well, we are continuing in our series on Ecclesiastes, which I began for us last week, the search for meaning. A couple of highlights from last week. If you didn't hear the message, I'd encourage you. Uh, you can find it on our podcast on our website. You can certainly check it out. A couple of notes, though. The author is distinct from the preacher, teacher, or orator. And this preacher or teacher is a bit of a cynic, as I'm sure you picked up as you heard that read. A skeptic. And he's challenging all of the ways that we will find meaning in our lives apart from God. Herman Melville, as I said last week, who's the author of Moby Dick, called Ecclesiastes the truest of all books. I claim that medieval thought of the book as one of the most dangerous of books. And then Peter Kreeft claimed that Ecclesiastes is the question to which Christ is the answer. And that's where we landed last week. And as you can maybe expect, is where we will land a bit today. Before we dig in, however, why don't you take a moment to pause, to invite God by his spirit to speak to you. If you are not, uh, don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, just would invite you, challenge you to just say, hey, Jesus, if you're real, teach me something. And let's see what God by his spirit does today. So, Lord Jesus, we give our study today of this section of text from Ecclesiastes. We want to trust you. We want to believe that these words are true and that they invite us to wrestle with deep questions. God, many of us come in here with with wonderful aspirations. We want to accomplish things. We want others to speak well of us. We want to acquire knowledge And yet, Lord Jesus, you challenge us in the text that if we look to each of these places as the primary place for meaning and purpose, then all is vanity. And so would we trust you in our search today 
In your son's name we pray, amen. One of my favorite uh, Christian authors and, and thinkers is someone by the name of Henry Nouwen. Uh, Henry Nouwen has uh, since passed away, and Nouwen was brilliant at writing short little books that pack a punch. Uh, one of my favorite uh, messages from Henry Nouwen uh, is one that you can actually find online. It was for, uh, this was probably a lot of us don't know, understand what this is, but it was Bobby Schuler's Hour of Power. Uh, you can find the message online, and the message is called Life of the Beloved, based upon a book that he had written. And in the message, Nowen is, is wrestling with the question of, who am I? Who am I? I want you to consider that question here for a moment. Who are you? Someone would ask you, okay, who are you? Nowen says that there are three ways that we typically answer this question. The first is, well, I am what I do. In other words, I am what I accomplish. You know, it's not uncommon that if you ask somebody to tell you a little bit about themselves, they start with their career. They start with that because it's a defining factor for them of, of who they are. It's their identity. They've aspired to a position. They have that position, so they define themselves by the thing that they do. He also says that people define themselves by what other people say of them. You know, how do other people perceive who I am? This, therefore, leads to my identity of, of who I am. And then finally, he says that others will describe their identity of I am what I have. I am, I am the, the summary of all of the things that I have consumed, my material possessions. This is who I am. Since Nowen's message, I think in our culture, you can probably add a few things to this list of I am what I do, I am what other people say about me, and I am what I have. And the results of each of these things means that many of us aspire towards doing great things, to have other people speak well of us, and then to have much, which then leads us to believe of, okay, this is who I am. Now, now and rightly challenges each of these things as far as aspirations and as far as definitions. And the first thing he says of it is that each of these things are temporal, and so therefore your identity is temporary. It's not long-lasting. There aren't great places to find complete and ultimate assurance. He then goes on to claim that these things are also pretty risky as far as your own emotional stability. Because if you are what you do, what happens when you don't do the thing that you always set out to do? Or what happens, as I suggested last week, when you set out to do something, you accomplish that thing, but yet it's not enough for you, and you need to go and therefore do something else. You maybe get reflective and you go, all of the sacrifice that I made to get to where I am, was it actually ultimately worth it? You can think of the reality of, well, if I am what other people say about me, well, what about the things that they don't say about you? Or what about what they say about you that you don't appreciate? You know, in all the messages that I've given over the years, um, I've certainly had a, a few handfuls of wonderful comments said to me, but I've also had a few handfuls of things that I didn't enjoy hearing. Yet, what are the comments that I can think back and remember the most? The negative ones. Or if I am what I have, well, what happens when you lose the things that you love and that you have that were identity markers for you? And so now in claims that if you live life with this perspective, your identity and your emotional stability will be like a roller coaster throughout life, and you'll probably end up like the preacher or cynic in our text going, it's all vanity. 
which as I described last week, is less about mirrors and makeup and more to do with smoke and vapor of, of, you know, in a foggy morning where you're trying to drive and make your way through things, where you do something and then it feels like, okay, did I actually do what I wanted to? I'm now lost again. How do I get to where I was going? It's discombobulating and such is the experience of life. In Ecclesiastes 1 verse 14, right through to chapter 2, our preacher speaks to the vapor and smoke, the vanity of our aspirations for consumption and pleasure and for knowledge and accomplishment. Now, in many ways, as you already heard, the text very much speaks for itself. So I simply want to go through it. I'll make a couple of comments and then we'll arrive at some conclusions. And so we are going to go through it again with one another a bit more slowly. If you have your Bibles, turn with me. Chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. The preacher says, I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I want you to notice here the theme of doing. He says, everything that is done under the sun. We'll come back to this theme as he digs more into it in the next chapter. He goes on, verse 16, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after the wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Here, notice the theme of knowledge. I applied my heart to know wisdom, which is, would be another way of actually answering Nowen's question of who am I? I am what I know. I am the degrees that I master. Once again, we're going to come back to it because it's another key theme that comes out in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? Notice where our preacher turns to next. If only I, I did. The vanity of consumption, pleasure-seeking, and self-gratification. Notice in verse 2, I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? Laughter equals all mad, pleasure, what's the use? He goes on, I, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart's still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. This is a true plant person. Some of us have a lot of plants that we're accumulating into our home. He had vineyards, plants. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. 
Please note, this is not the scriptures encouraging slavery because as we'll come to see, he says it's all vanity. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been for me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. If only I did, where does he turn? Well, he turns to wine and wisdom, to defeat folly, to see ultimately what is good. Great works, houses, vineyards, garden, parks, trees, pools, slaves, possessions, silver and gold, singers and concubines. Verse 9, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. Notice that line. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all of my toil. What's the preacher saying? I had it all. I had it all. I did not hold back in any way. There was pleasure to be had and I went after it. I jumped in. Now this is where many people will make the connection to Solomon. Knowing of Solomon in the scriptures, that he was an incredibly wise man, wisdom given to him from God, and had a great accumulation and treasures and possession. But then look, after jumping in, then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun." He's saying, was all the work I did worth it? Did the costs outweigh the benefits? No! Now, Solomon is the author of Ecclesiastes, or the preacher. We know that he had 300 concubines and 700 wives, which means Solomon had a lot of sex. And what does he say? Vanity, vapor, smoke. All was vanity, hevel is the word here used in the original text. And there's nothing to be gained under the sun. The wise Jim Carrey said this, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. I just finished a book called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, A New Guide to Sex in the 21st Century written by someone by the name of Louise Perry. Now, she's not a believer, but someone who, based on research, has proven that most of the promises of the sexual revolution, mainly pleasure, go after it, do whatever you want, has not actually resulted in better outcomes, but in fact, a worse result. Speaking of uh, female pleasure specifically, she says that 63% of women in long-term relationships attest to sexual pleasure whereas only 10% of single women experience pleasure during first-time hookups, claiming it's better to be in a long-term relationship in order to experience meaningful pleasure. She goes on and writes about porn, 
Problem being that as you never feel done with it, you always go back for more, and it oftentimes makes you feel less fulfilled, and actually what happens is you feel more empty as the years and time and your addiction continues. She talks about dopamine highs, and what was once exhilarating must then be trumped by something else. You crossed one line, and now you have a new line to cross. But does this now show the vanity in chasing these highs? They never truly give you what you ultimately want, and you always need another high. If we speak to the theme of accumulation, does joy truly come from having more things or less things? A humbling reality for all of us is that you can't take it with you. And so pleasure on their own with accumulation has no lasting purpose, often then becoming a distraction from what you and I really do know to be true. Let's keep going and look to the next place our preacher turns for meaning. Verse 12, so I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Notice where he turns. Because having didn't work, I now turn to wisdom. This is something that we saw already touched on in chapter 1, verse 16 to 18. What's the aspiration? If I only knew. In other words, the vanity of living wisely and attaining great wisdom. Verse 13, Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes on, in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. This is very true, right? There's more to be gained in wisdom than in folly. Using the example illustrating this point of saying there's, there's better to be gained in light than in walking around in the darkness. So yes, wisdom is good. But there's a problem with this pursuit. 14b. <laughs> and yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, this is also vanity. Regardless of all of the degrees that you accumulate and all of the, the wisdom that you attain, Wise experience turmoil, just like the foolish do. Therefore, he says, even wisdom and folly are vanity. Verse 16, for of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. This is something we touched on last week, that most of us are actually living lives of obscurity, illustrated in the point of, do you know the name of your great-great-grandparent? Do you know what they did for a living? Do you know what mattered to them? Do you know what their aspirations were? Many of us, the answer to that question is no, I don't. So the conclusion that the preacher comes to in verse 17, so I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Even in dedicating ourselves, brothers and sisters, to the how of the universe, the why will continue to elude us. Human wisdom and knowledge can only take us so far, often to a point of frustration and grief. The author is unknown here, but this author states, the more you know, the more it hurts. I want to give you one example. Environmental economic sustainability. Think on that for a moment. 
environmental, economic sustainability. We could all get multiple degrees on this as we progress in life, and we could arrive at completely different conclusions. How about historic injustice and present-day reconciliation? What is the right approach? If we were to just poll the room, I'm sure we would see many different approaches recognized and recommended. You know, some will even suggest, well, the, the root to meaning is to, you know, come to grips with knowledge of your own personal past. Come, up, come to grips with your upbringing as a root to meaning. But without tracks to run on, many people, as they look more deeply into their own personal history, what comes up is shame, increased turmoil, embarrassment, and an increasing awareness of personal inadequacy. And so what we therefore need are tracks to run on, the true why. And the preacher says, all is vanity apart from that. So where does the preacher look to next? Verse 18, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. This is the aspiration of if only I had the vanity of toil, something introduced for us in chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. So why does the preacher hate all of his toil? Because I have to leave it to somebody else. I can't take it with me. Verse 19. And who knows, (laughs) who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be a master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. What will the person do with all of the stuff that I've accumulated? The work that I've accomplished in my life? This is really the challenge and reality of succession. And what you recognize as you're working is that you're powerless. You're responsible for your job now, but in the future, you're powerless for how everything that you've done will be handled in the future. And all of us need to come to grips with that. Therefore, the preacher says, vanity, (laughs) vanity. So what's the response of the preacher to this recognition? Despair. Verse 20, so I turned about and gave my heart up to despair (laughs) over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil because for all the blood, sweat, and tears, I must leave it all to somebody else who has not shed the same blood, sweat, and tears that I have. Oh, that's uncomfortable. You know, there will come a day where I will no longer be the pastor of this church and someone else will be. That's enough to kind of shake you in your boots and go, what am I doing? Who's it going to be? What will they do with what I've done? Verse 22, what is a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? In other words, what do I get from everything that I've done? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Vanity. Tim Shattuck, his book, Better, here's the truth. If you work for dignity, legacy, and wealth alone, you end up with nothing in the end. 
That desire for permanence, significance, and connection cannot be satisfied. So, um, we'll see you all later. Thanks for being here. It's a little bleak. Is there any hope? Verse 24a. There is nothing better for a person that he, than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? This is, this is from God. Notice now he's looking. He's saying this is from God. The, the bit of toil that I have done and the things that I've contributed to. He's saying for who can have enjoyment in all of these different things apart from God? In other words, we can earn money, legacy, and dignity. We can feel like we have it, but the truth is that no human being can earn or create true enjoyment and the deepest satisfaction. What he's saying is this is something that only God can ultimately provide. Verse 26, For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give it to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is going on here? Well, he says to please God equals wisdom, knowledge, and joy. Whereas the sinner gathers and collects And what the person, therefore, who's doing that will ultimately be doing is giving it over to the person that pleases God. Well, how does this work? Well, for the sinner, there is no God. Yet if God exists and is beyond time and space, all things that are done, what we read in the scriptures is that all things that are done, God can work for good and for his purposes. Therefore, even the toil of a sinner, God can use in his great equation for his glory and for his children's good. Look with me at Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those that are called according to his purpose. For the sinner, however, all of their toil, all that they do, vanity, as I pointed out last week, the other place in the scriptures where this word vanity is also used is in Roman 8, Romans 8, verse 20, where we read, For the creation was subjected to futility. Well, have you ever asked the question or stopped maybe now, why was the creation subjected to futility, to hevel? And the reason is sin. The result of sin Humanity's rebellion against God, as we saw last week, is toil and work, death, decay in the natural world, and ultimately then nothing new. Sin is rejection of God, a failure to come with empty hands and simply receive. And what we do is we believe the myth that I can earn my own salvation, which ultimately then robs us of our enjoyment. But there is also this very unique blessing in vanity and futility. Because in a sense, the vanity and results of sin is what leads us to the reality that you and I need redemption. We need true hope. And we need the true source of meaning in the midst of the vapor that is our lives. And brothers and sisters, where is this redemption and hope found? Jesus Christ, our living hope. Ecclesiastes is the question to which Christ is the answer. 
with this new lens. Read here with me 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 7. I will read it for us. You're maybe familiar with these words. Maybe you are not, but notice the words here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To what? An inheritance. Think about all the things we want to accumulate and take on. What does he say? To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who God, for, by God's power are being guarded through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ." Brothers and sisters, our identity is according to his great mercy. He's caused us to be born again. We've been adopted into the Father's family. You and I are now the beloved. That is God the Father said over God the Son at his baptism, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. He says the same thing over you and me, period. And this is not about aspirations. This is about assurance. Aspirations are about what we want and what we hope to achieve rather than about what we have and are then assured of now. And so through Christ, we have assurance of our place with Christ both now and in the future. Our living hope is eternal and not temporary, and therefore our hope is truly forever, and it is not temporal. Amen? Amen. And what this means is that through Christ, we come to see that, number one, Christ is the true treasure and the true pleasure and enjoyment are a gift to humanity through the gospel. Christ is the true treasure. And Christ and the true pleasure and enjoyment are his gift to humanity through the gospel. If we just look at John 4, 13 to 14, Jesus said to this woman at the well, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now this is not to say that we cannot find joy and pleasure in life, only that we cannot ultimately look to these things to provide for us what they were never intended to provide. They are temporal and therefore they provide only a temporary experience. Secondly, through Christ we come to see that we must look to the source of wisdom to try, find true meaning, purpose, and value. And what we read in the scriptures is that God's wisdom comes to us as a gift. And the way he gives us wisdom brings us to a closer understanding ultimately of who he is and how he works in our lives. And so what we do is we come to surrender to his wisdom, to his sovereignty, and to his control. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. 
For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And what this also means is that through Christ we come to see that we can trust Christ's finished work and the joy of simply being his children. Revelation 22, verse 13, we read, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says God, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. We have an end to life on this earth. Through Christ, we have eternal life given to us. But to, Christ, to God, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Once again, quoting Chaddock in his book, Better, when you first realize that the most important thing in life is appreciating that you are a treasured and remembered by God as a gift of his grace through Jesus, everything about your work starts to change. Your attitude changes. Your focus changes. You begin to daydream about how you can work to bless others because you've been so blessed by God. When you root your value and worth in him, then your view of work cannot help but be transformed. When you root your value and worth in him, brothers and sisters, then your view of work cannot help but be transformed. And this is ultimately one of the goals of our vocational groups, is that people in different uh, segments working in different arenas would see this truth and would encourage each other towards this end. 